1: G'day. Welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Bringing new ideas to make it better. Every week since 2013, Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, Fridays with you. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. I'm a podcaster, an author, a TV host, a single contact lens wearer. And today you and I are going to listen back to an episode from 2020 uh, because what we do on Wednesdays is we listen back to a small version of a much longer episode, episode 339 with Anna Mears, one of the most profoundly successful and influential athletes our country's ever produced. She's extraordinary. Anna Mears is the most decorated female track cyclist of all time. Now, Anna is retired these days. Even though she's retired, I'm in constant awe of her achievements on and off the track. In this conversation with Anna, we're going to talk about where it all started for her as a teenager, what it was like to be judged on her appearance, dealing with things like hate mail, what it's like to operate in a very male dominant sport, and what it's like to restart her life after having retired from being a professional cyclist doing the same thing every day for decades, even. Currently, Anna Mears lives in Adelaide, South Australia, but she's originally from central Queensland. So we'll start by hearing where it all began for Anna.
2: A small town called Middlemount in central Queensland in the Bowen Basin in the coal industry area. And uh, yeah, just grew up one of four kids in the Mears family, baby of the four. And um, we were always growing up outdoors in rural Australia, rural country, Queensland. If the sun was up, we were allowed outside. And if the sun was down, we had to be back. That was our, our general rule of thumb. It was a great place to grow up for that reason.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. And I, I talk about it often, the, like the first freedom machine that I ever had. The, when I got my first BMX at the age of eight, suddenly I could go places that I was no longer limited by my two feet and the distance that I could walk within halfway to sunset because I had to turn around and come back. (laughs) You know, I could now explore far and wide. Do you recall, like, were you rolling with a crew of, uh, of similar BMX age kids?
2: Yeah, we were big in the BMX scene. We loved BMX. But I remember the moment when I traded my... My little girl's bike, so to speak, you know, I had the Spoky dokes and the the tassels out the handlebars and the flower basket and the orange flag up the back. The flag. Try- oh, man. <laughs> yeah, the flag.
1: Everyone was up. the flag was going to be the king. The flag was, what are we, like, are we are four-wheel drive crossing the
2: Simpson Desert? We don't need a flag. <laughs> I had the flag. How good were the flags? Um, but I, I remember when I swapped that for a BMX, a little pit bike. And I went from being a lady of leisure to a lady of speed. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been about five or six.
1: Oh, slick. Was it a hand-me-down or was it a was it yours? Uh,
2: the BMX was a hand-me-down. I never got anything new bike-wise till I was about 19, 20, and I could afford to buy it myself.
1: So all the time you started, you were competing pretty early, like 11, 12, weren't you?
2: Yeah. So yeah. that
1: was all on someone else's bike?
2: Yep. Borrowed <laughs> bikes from the club, and then when my big sister Carrie grew out of her bike, I got that as a hand me down. And um, even my junior world titles, I won on uh, her bike, not mine.
1: Wow! Yeah, far out. And at what point in your life do you remember the first time someone kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Hey, Anna, you've got something the other kids don't have"?
2: I was thirteen, and I had just quit cycling, and I kept having to go into the cycling club because my sister Carrie wanted to do it. So every weekend we had to make the trip into town. And I kept sitting on the fence line, just watching her race. And Reg Tucker, my first coach, just kept coming up to me uninvited to ask me why I wasn't on a bike. And he could see that I could read a race well. And he eventually convinced me to come back. And he knew there was something different about me, but he always says now he didn't think it it was what it turned out to be. So he was probably the first person that really believed that I had something.
1: 13 is a really common age for girls to drop out of sport. Can you relate to that?
2: Absolutely. There was so much going on in life. Life was fun and to give up weekends and to wake up early and be dedicated and tired and fatigued and, you know, missed the sleepovers with friends and the discos and all the social elements of a young child's life was a tough ask. But I was also a bit of a nerd. I loved my school, even though I was academically well inclined, I still love my sport. So I kind of had a taste of cycling for two years and I thought, nah, I'm going to chase academics. And then eventually it was Reggie who who convinced me to get back on the, on the treadley.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and at what point did it look like that you know, as high school starts to round out, at what point did it start to look like this could be a career to pursue?
2: The year I was 16 turning 17. High school was hard for me to be able to fit training in, not just with school, but with my parents' takeaway shop as well. We had a barbecue takeaway shop that we had to work seven days a week or seven years. So my high school days was get up at four, train from five to seven. I'd have a half hour nap in the back of their car at the back of the chook shop. Then I'd go to school after school, I'd do my shift. And then after my shift, I would do my track training and catch a lift home with them about 8, 9 o'clock. So my days were full. I got a lot of detentions at high school because I didn't get my homework done often. <laughs> but I was 16. I'd won the Junior World Championships after you know being involved with the sport for uh, five, six years by that stage. And it was then that I thought maybe I could make something of it. I wasn't convinced, but just maybe.
1: In recent weeks here in Australia, it's... You know, hard not to question how women are treated in sport, particularly after the extraordinary success of the Matilda's uh, Women's World Cup campaign. So in 2020, I asked Anna if she had noticed a difference between what the male cyclists were essentially getting away with versus what the female athletes were allowed to get away with as far as, I don't know, as far as treating other people in certain ways. The responses she gave all came down to the culture of the men's and women's teams.
2: Yeah, well, I'll probably start that answer with saying that under Reggie, my first coach, I was actually the first female that he coached. So I fell into a big group of guys, both my age and older, and they were all very respectful. Everyone was there for the right reasons. Reggie kept everyone well and truly in line. He's very old school coach in that regard. So when I moved to the AIS and the environment was heightened in terms of what was on offer, the competition to get it, and what was required to achieve that made the environment even more intense. You know, we, we were going through harassment classes so that the guys and girls learned how to interact with each other. We even had the guys training at different times in the gym to the girls who would get up at six o'clock so that tensions would not be you know, raised. And we really had to learn how to interact with each other. It was almost like the guys were competing every day at training to beat each other before they even got to the competition track where competition actually started. For them, it started every day at training. So when I came in the program, I don't think the culture was very good to start with. And it took a really long time to see that change, where ultimately by the time I left the team, that daily training environment became so protected that everyone was supportive to give each other the best opportunity to put Australia's best cyclists on the track. Whereas that competition was happening well before the big comp days when I first moved in.
1: There's obviously now I'm so happy that here we are in 2020 and we have come so far in the way that male and female athletes are treated. We've still got uh, forever to go as far as prize money goes and as far as sponsorship money and coverage goes as far as press yet. It's still a factor, and I'll, I'll use surfing as an example. It's still a factor that the highest paid female surfer in the world might not be the best female surfer in the world, but she'll be the one that looks the best in a bikini. And that's you know pretty much everyone who's walked past an Alana Blanchard poster will know that. I'm not saying she's not a great surfer. She's an amazing surfer. But because she looks great right in a bikini, she'll always earn, earn more money than perhaps a better surfer who may not look as great in a bikini and that's fine. That's just bodies are different. When did you first start to notice the difference between how your appearance played a role in your success versus what what the men were facing?
2: Well, my first experience with body image was a really positive one at the AIS because when I moved down, the first thing was I had to get, you know, the DEXA scans, the, you know, the skin pinch tests, weight, all that sort of stuff. And I remember stepping on the scales and the coach at the time, Martin bress looking over my shoulder to see what the number was. And I thought to myself, Oh my God, he's not gonna be impressed. I'm gonna be going on a diet, all this sort of stuff. And the first thing he said to me was, You need to eat more food. You need to put on weight. Like that really contradicts everything that socially you see in magazines and that you become stereotypically familiar with of a female body. And then really the first time I ever experienced what I look like in terms of comparative to another athlete, not necessarily the men in our team, because our sport's never been big in terms of sponsorship dollars and profile, was Vicky Pendleton coming up against um, my British rival in Vicky Pendleton, who was glamorous who was physically very different to me. She was tall and quite skinny. I'm short and stocky. And going into London, when the rivalry was starting to really take hold and build, the media started to take hold of The differences they could correlate between the two of us, Aussie versus Brit, and the physical nature of our sport too, but also the tension that we had in our own relationship and rivalry as a result of competition over the years. I remember one of the headlines was just plain and simply broomstick versus lipstick. And I have never before been stopped in my tracks to feel so unattractive or be judged in such a way that was not even relatable to what I did as a profession. And how I got over that was simply my manager said to me, Anna, there are so many more uses for a broomstick than lipstick. So don't worry about that. (laughs) At least I felt useful. But yeah, Victoria was the glamour queen of the British, not just cycling team, but the British Olympic team. And she was featured in Vogue. She was featured in all these incredible magazines. And I was not. (laughs) And that was okay for me because it's not me. I don't have that image. It's not, I'm not comfortable in that way. Often you'll see me swim in board shorts and bikinis anyway. And then to step out onto a track where your body is covered by one millimeter thick piece of lycra from head to toe and be judged by the crowd, by social media at this stage, really prompted me to kind of put restrictions around what I engage with how accessible I made myself to people and how much social media I interacted with because it wasn't just me impacted by that. It was my family. My big sister, who's terribly protective, Tracy, she would ring me and she goes, have you read this article? Uh, No, I haven't. I don't want to read the article, but I can put you in touch with someone if you need to vent (laughs) because I don't want to be aware of whatever is in that article. And so I had to be very select in that way.
1: I am so sorry that you went through that. I remember it and When you are so focused on those, crikey, 10 seconds of your life, you've been working every goddamn day for 14 years, what, what, 2005, I'm just trying terrible maths, like a long time, all right? Yeah, yeah. And you have dedicated every waking hour and sleeping hour, because you want to get good sleep to recover, to these 10 seconds of your life, and it's being minimized to the point of comparing you to a, a cleaning implement mm. and you, you are of no value because you don't look the same as this other person. God damn it. I'm so sorry you went through that.
2: Oh, that's okay. I appreciate that. But I don't know if you remember the Australian story documentary that was done after the London Olympics. I actually interviewed that journalist that wrote that article and he emphatically apologized because he just simply justified it by saying, oh, I was just having fun. I just, I didn't think that they would read it. I didn't think that it would hurt them. I was joining in with the vibe and the feel at the time. And it was similar, you know, after I won my gold in London, I remember I had a lot of hate mail come in from UK citizens. And I replied to, I I set a deadline of 10 emails a day. I replied to every single hate mail that I got. And it took me over a year to do it. And a lot of those people just came back and said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea you'd read it, let alone reply. I just needed somewhere to vent. And, and people just aren't aware that as soon as you put it out there, it can be accessed by that person and affect that person. So yeah, there was still 5% of the emails I replied to that just plain came back and said, nah, nothing you can say can change my opinion of you. And then I was like, fine, I hit the delete button. <laughs>
1: We're back in a moment with Anna Mears. If this podcast does bring you any value at all, I would ask if you can, share this show. If something you've heard already is like, you know what, my friend should hear that. Hit the burger, hit the dots, hit the arrow, hit the paper plane, whatever is in your podcast app. Copy it, copy the little chain, pop it in a in a comment box that justifies, like just to help support something you're saying in a comment box somewhere. Sharing this podcast is the best thing you can do for us. Really appreciate it. We're back with more from Anna Mears in a moment. This is Better Make It Quick. We're listening to a conversation that I had with Anna Mears in 2020, Ep 339, if you want to scroll on back. Anna Mears retired from life as a professional cyclist in 2016. So I wanted to know, was like when she did start to essentially get work outside of that, did she approach it with a similar zest, I guess, similar discipline?
2: Yes, I did. And this was where I got into trouble. Not into trouble, but where most of the work had to be was – in learning to not be so hard on myself, not be so self-analytical, critical, judgmental. You know, you miss one one thousandth of a second. You'll go back to the drawing board and look for every tooth and nail that you can pull together to cross the T's and dot the I's to make that one hundredth of a tenth improvement for next time, maybe two hundredths of a tenth improvement for next time. And I realized that most people... (laughs) Operate say between seventy and eighty-five percent in in everyday life, and I couldn't comprehend how that was acceptable. I'm always punctual. If you're not ten minutes early, you're ten minutes late, and I couldn't believe how many people couldn't turn up on time for events and meetings. I was and...
1: six minutes late for our
2: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, I've relaxed on this, osha Thank I'm you. Quite okay with that. I appreciate
1: that it. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Just so you know, I wasn't lying. I still have my gaiters on because I've I've been out in the front yard digging holes. I was like,
2: fuck, I've got to get inside.
1: My fingernails are covered in dirt. (laughs)
2: Sounds like a nice day.
1: Yeah, it was was fun out there. Uh, But, Yeah. yeah, so getting used to everybody else not, of course, People don't act like that because they're not elite athletes (laughs) whose entire career prospects rely on being that one one one-thousandth of a second faster than the other person, and they're not looking for every little nuanced advantage they can possibly get in their day. They're just like, oh, yeah, it's there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And for me, if I didn't get it, I felt like I failed. Right. Yeah. So this whole notion of being what was successful and what was not had to be completely recalibrated from that point on.
1: In this time when so many people are facing unemployment or underemployment or the prospect that their industry may not recover for some time if it recovers, uh, which is heavy, but that's what we're looking at. Yeah. The idea that, who am I? I'm a cyclist. And that's a really easy answer because it's a one-word two syllable, three syllable, cyclist, cyclist, depending on what country you're from. It's a Mm. one word answer that instantly puts a picture in someone else's mind. This is what I do. This is who I am. This gives you an idea exactly what my day and my structure is like. Once that definition goes away, how do you start to rebuild that definition of yourself once that stops? Because a lot of people may be going for the first time, oh, my sense of purpose, my sense of you know I never had to think about that stuff because what I did was every day I got up and I went and, you know, worked on cars or changed tires or whatever. Now I don't do that. Mm. What am I doing? What am I here for? Like what would you have to say around trying to put your sense of purpose back together?
2: Um in in my experience I had to try and separate what people thought I should could or would do as Anna me as the cyclist and what I wanted to do as Anna. And that in some ways, was brought to my attention by my partner, Nick, who said, "You know, what will make you happy? What will feed your soul at this time? And it took me a little while to kind of nut, nut it out and work out where I might be interested in different things. But I knew I always loved art. I had been good at drawing and painting since I was a kid. I had not done it since school. So I looked into art and I just joined a class. I just started with joining a class and learning from the bottom again and being prepared to be at the bottom and work my way up. And I also knew I wanted to have the experience of family one day, but at the time I was single, I'd only just started in a relationship with my partner, Nick. And adoption in this country is pretty non-existent, especially if you're a single person. And so I was kind of steered by a friend into looking into fostering. And I went to a foster information session. It was the first time since I retired that I was smacked in the face by a piece of information that struck a chord with my heart. And it was just simply that this one organization needed to house 600 kids a night in South Australia alone. And I I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that we live in Australia and in this state, 600 kids have nowhere to sleep at night safely. And I thought, if I can impact one child's life for a short period of time in a positive way, surely that has to be a good thing. And that was where I started to engage in a new passion. Believe me, I've tried a few different things and they didn't speak to me. And I I started and I stopped and I went on to something else, but it takes time. And that's the frustrating thing is there's actually no measure on that time. We all want a time measure on it. When am I going to know what's going to happen? When am I going to know when I'm going to pick up a new skill or a new job or a new career and all those sorts of things. And, And that's, hard to let go of in order to let yourself find it in the first place. In context of what people are experiencing now, and you said the word in the question, Asha, you said if those things happen. And if is good to think about in terms of contingency planning, you know, in big picture stuff. But in situational response, if is a really crippling word to use because it invokes a fear response and, and fear and doubt. And for me, I learned the difference between what if and what is through my accident that I had in 2008, because I was two millimeters from a clean break at my C2 level. And in learning that, I was instantly struck by fear. You know, what if that two millimeters hadn't been there? What would my life be like? Do I even want to ride a bike anymore? I don't know how I'm going to go about doing it. If I get back on the bike, all these what ifs came into play. And um, my coach just simply said to me, you're asking the right question, but you're using the wrong word. Don't ask what if, ask what is. And the simple difference is, is, is the tangible, real information you can use today to make a decision, if is fear-based, emotion-based. And emotion clouds our ability, firstly, to see the information, to be able to logically utilize it to make a decision going forward. And um, I'll give you some examples. What if the coach puts me in front of the goals and I miss it for my team? What if I go for a job interview and I don't get the job? Like those things haven't actually happened yet. But if you focus on that as an outcome, often you'll follow the process to make it happen. So for me, that two millimeters, I was like, what if that two millimeters hadn't have happened? Whereas the is of that situation was simply the two millimeters saved my life. You know, so you can look at one situation from two vastly different standpoints that will land you in two very different places. And I learned to ask what is in relation to a situation that I've been facing. It's not easy (laughs) because you have to really learn to set aside emotional responses. But at the same time, it, it does help you get through situations.
1: The full conversation that I had with enemy is as well worth it. I'm always fascinated by what someone who was focused for so long, for so many years on one particular thing to great success, what they do when that thing is over. It's particularly usually an athletic because you eventually young people show up and our bodies don't perform as well when we're older. It's nobody's fault. It just happens. And I find I'm fascinated by it. It's a real great chat. It's interesting. In the full conversation, she shares quite a big admission about her ego, her pride, and what I consider one of the most epic conversations, which is actually quite quite good. It's an episode 339. Thank you so much to everyone that helped me make the show today. Thank you to Andy Marr on audio and video post, Abby Benno, who produced the episode Toe Hider on the music, and you for listening. Send us an email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. I'll see you Friday